Hello, I'm Al Head, Director of the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and I want to welcome you to Alabama Arts Radio Series. Each week we will be introducing you to some exceptional artists and other special people who make the arts happen in Alabama. Alabama is the home of a wide range of gifted and creative people who make important contributions to our unique cultural environment. Each week, members of the council staff will be visiting with some of these special people and introducing you to some of our state's most valuable human resources. So, for the next 30 minutes, sit back, relax, and enjoy Alabama Arts. Rick Hall, who passed away on January 2nd, was a larger-than-life figure in American popular music with an influence that extended across musical genres. As the founder of Fame Studios and Muscle Shoals, he produced hit records by a diverse group of artists ranging from Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and Candy Staten to the Osmonds, Mac Davis, and Bobby Gentry. He had a hand in launching the careers of countless musicians and songwriters, and he established a musical community in the Shoals area that continues to flourish. In May of 2015, Rick Hall received a Governor's Arts Award. The day after the event, we recorded this interview for Alabama Arts Radio. He took the time to talk with us after a long, busy day and evening, and he gave us his full attention. In addition to his many accomplishments, we'll remember Rick Hall as a kind and caring man, and we are pleased to rebroadcast our conversation with him tonight. Rick, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. I know that your story is well known, but can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into the music business in the shoals of all places? Absolutely. I will uh, tell you that I've, I got into the music business when I was about five years old. My father was a singing school teacher, an old-fashioned gospel quartet singer and teacher, and he loved gospel music. He gave me most of my knowledge about music and got me started in the business. Me and my sister were were orphans, and we uh, grew up without a mother. So my dad raised me and my sister, did the cooking, worked at a sawmill for 35 cents an hour, was a jack-of-all-trades. He was my tutor. Never a day goes by that I don't think about him. He's never, he never saw any of this happen to me. But he gave you the gift that made it yeah, possible, he did. didn't he? He gave me the gift. His work ethics and his drive and common sense, we called it common horse sense, uh, was the thing behind my success. Well, in your book, you talked about early on being interested mainly in country music. How did your musical horizons expand? Well, I was never real happy just doing country music and writing country songs and playing in a country band. So I wanted to be special. I wanted to be number one. I guess a year ago or two years ago, I was voted the, by Billboard magazine, the Bible of the music industry, the number one record producer for the world. That'll steam me up. I mean, that'll get you going. <laughs> did, that, did that make you feel like you, you had arrived yes, after had all arrived this when time? I, when, when I did that. But a lot of the accolades have came my way. I give God the credit for all of it. God's very good, and he's been good to me. And he's, in spite of all of my weaknesses and put-downs and setbacks, he was always behind me. And so I give God the glory in everything I do. 
Well, you've always been able to get back up when you've had those setbacks, yes, haven't you? Yes, ma'am, I have. Well, and you've described a lot of this in your book recently that, that's come out. It's called the Rick Hall, The Man from Muscle Shows. Yes, ma'am. It took you a while to get this all written, didn't it? It took me 10 years to write the book and about two or three years to get a publisher interested enough to publish the book. It's been a long, hard trip for me, but it was fun. It's always been fun, and I won't do anything in my life that's not fun that I don't enjoy doing. The book started out to be a a daily diary of sorts, and so I would write down, well, some pickets were coming to Muscle Shows today to record, and we don't have sufficient tunes. I don't have a song that I think is the number one song. And so we'd write the song together. Me and my songwriters, and I'm a publisher and a songwriter, and we have two recording studios, four publishing companies, and so I've have over the years I've worked with some of the best songwriters in the state of Alabama, and in the, in the United States for that matter. I was always looking for a hit song to produce on a hit act, and of course we had the first number one record on uh, Aretha Franklin, who's uh, from Detroit, Michigan. We did Wilson Pickett, all of his hit records, Mustang Sally, Funky Broadway, Hey Jude, and so forth. I've been looking for hit songs ever since. But to answer your question, why I went from country to black music was I found out the hard way that if you could have a number one record in country and sell 50,000 albums in pop or R&B, you might be able to sell 5 million albums. So there's a big difference in, in the economics of the whole thing. So I, but not only that, but I wanted to be uh, special. Well, I wanted to be a leader. I didn't want to be a follower. The book is The Man from Muscle Shoals, My Journey from Shame to Fame. If you want the book, you can get it in any, any major bookstore. If you'd like, you can order it online to fame, F-A-M-E, the number two, Dot com, And you can order it there. You have uh, the CD of the movie, award-winning movie, I might add, uh, that's uh, inserted into the back of the book. And you'll get two for the price of one. The DVD on Muscle Shoals and its music. And, of course, my book. And I would encourage people to find that book. And I've read it, and you'll enjoy every word of it. It's a great Thank story. Thank you very much. You talk about knowing something's a hit song. You have an ear for that, or you have a talent for picking out what's going to be a hit. Yeah, well, God, gave, God gave me that talent, but you have to work at anything that you want to do. Uh, you can't just have a talent. You have to work at it. My philosophy has always been if you have the same talent that I do, whether it be a record producer, a songwriter, or a musician, or whatever, if you... Uh, I work eight hours a day, and I work 16 hours a day at my trade. I'm going to eat your lunch in one year. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to overtake you. When you hear a song that you think is a hit, what might stand out? Can you give me an example maybe of something that you Well, it, it needs to be a hit title. You start with a title. If the title is Don't Get Hooked on Me, Baby, Baby, Don't Get Hooked on Me by Mac Davis, which I produced the number one record on. Uh, the title's Hook Me, uh, and it needs to have a hook in it. 
but it needs to be either a musical hook or a lyric hook. And it can't be just a common story. I love you and you love me and we both love each other. Nobody cares. But it's got to be a tragedy or it's got to be something that's meaningful to the listening audience. And that's where you start. With me, it starts with a, the title. If I like the title, I'm probably going to listen to the song. It's like headlines in the newspaper. I'm not going to read the newspaper if uh, there's not something in- interesting on the first page. Well, what about some of Wilson Pickett's songs? Let's talk about him for a while because he's another Alabama. Mm-hmm. He's from Prattville, Alabama. That's right. And, uh, but uh, Wilson was a good friend of mine and uh, Atlantic Records, who was his record, record company, owned by Jerry Wexler, the owner of the of the company and and one of the one of the big guys that we took direction from, and I made a record deal with him to distribute my record label, which is Fame F A M E. He sent down a couple of artists, unknown artists. Don Covey was one. Don Covey was a great songwriter. He had written a couple of hits. One was Seesaw, uh, and it was a big hit record. So he was testing me out to see what I could do with an unknown act. And, of course, I'd already sent him, called him and sent him a Percy Sledge's record, When a Man Loves a Woman. And he loved it, and he put it out, and, of course, it became number one worldwide. So I was high on his list. My stock went way up, sky was, uh, sky high after, after that record was a big, big smash worldwide. And he sold a lot of records. But getting back to your question, he uh, he sent down Don Covey. I had very little success with him. We we didn't hit it off. And he was a great songwriter, but he wasn't a great talent. And, and he didn't have the looks that we needed to have a, a, a major star. We uh, did the best we could with him. And then he sent Wilson Pickett down. And, and Wilson Pickett... We had a string of five big hit records. Hey Jude, Land of a Thousand Dances, Funky Broadway, Mustang Sally, and Hey Joe. All were big hit records for him in succession. So he was convinced that I had that I had ears and that I could hear a hit record when if it came along. And so that's how it came about and then he brought Aretha Franklin down, and she'd been on CBS Records for five years and hadn't had a hit and hadn't had the syllabus of a hit. He sent her down and said, I want to bring Aretha Franklin down. Are you, are you familiar with Aretha Franklin? I said, no, I'm not. I'm familiar with her father, who's a preacher that we listened to out of Detroit, Michigan, uh, on our way back from gigs in Nashville, Tennessee, and and Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and so forth, me and my band. By this time, I had gone from country to rock and roll or pop. You were playing with the Fairlanes, weren't you? I was playing you? with the Fairlanes, yes, ma'am. I was into that kind of music, and we were getting requests for those kind of songs, you know, Clarence Frogman Henry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, and and those kind of songs. So I was eat up with those kind of records and loved them and it became my love of life and so I was this country fiddle player who got lucky or whatever two big hit records out of Muscle Shoals, Alabama 
so people started looking my way and saying, wait a minute, who is this guy in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, is having all these hits? Well, let's send some acts down there. And so people started sending a lot of acts to me. We've been talking with Rick Hall of Fame Records, and we'll take a short break now and be back in a moment. The Alabama Arts Radio Series is presented to you by the Alabama State Council on the Arts in cooperation with Troy Public Radio. The Council is the official arts agency in Alabama with the mandate to support the broadest range of artistic resources throughout the state. The Council emphasizes educational programs that reach students of all ages and works to provide all sectors of the population with access to quality arts experiences. Well, we were talking about the ability to hear a hit, and you've shown that you have that ability in any number of styles of music. You really sort of made your name with soul and R&B, and then you moved over into an area that some people may think of as pop. How did that come about? As time progressed and circumstances prevailed, when the music changed to hip-hop, and from southern rock and southern pop, we kind of lost our footing. So I was that country guy who could produce country records. Mike Curb had a meeting with me in Los Angeles, California, and said, uh, Rick, I'd like for you to go to Las Vegas with me and fly over. We were in L.A. And fly over to Las Vegas and see a group that I'm interested in. So I went there and saw the Osmonds, and there were five of them, of course. They were like stair steps, you know. Donnie was 12, I guess, and they went from 12 to 15 to whatever. I was blown away by them. I was tickled to death, and it had been my thought that why are all the white audience and the black audience buying all of the Jackson 5 records? Wexler and I had already talked about this, and he said, if you want a country hit, you need to go to a country songwriter. And if you want a black hit, you need to go to a black songwriter. And so we agreed on that. So I started a publishing company in Memphis, Tennessee, and we uh, started grooming young writers. And there was a fellow by the name of George Jackson who wrote One Bad Apple for the Osmonds which was the number one record worldwide, I guess. So George was my mainstay in, in, in Memphis, and I said to him, I called him on the way home from seeing the Osmonds, and said, George, I need a, a Jackson 5 type song, one, two, three kind of a thing, to cut on a lily white group that I think is going to be monstrous. And he said, well, I'll do what I can. And he's, so he wrote the song and sent it down in a couple of weeks produced a demo in my studio in Memphis. I had a studio there at the time. Uh, I freaked out over it. I thought it was a smash. And so we cut it on them. Of course, I had to teach them every little blues lick. So they were very bright, and they'd been well taught by their father, who was their manager, George. So we went in the studio and we cut the record, and I sent it to Mike Curb, who was the president at the time of MGM Records, and he said, 
Rick, this is a smash, and I'm going to put 60% of all of my funding for the record label towards producing a, a number one record on them. And, of course, then when it played out, and eventually, I don't care how good you are as a record producer, you're going, you're going to slow down. You're going to use up all your ideas. And, and things change, too. Yeah, things the change. The music changes and the whole thing. So we uh, had to convert from that to country. And so I knew all about country. You know, I was a fiddle player in a country band for years and, and wrote country songs in Nashville. And I knew all the people in Nashville. They were buddies of mine. It was an easy transition for me in that I was acquainted with all the people, the right people in Nashville and in New York and in Los Angeles. So it was an easy transition. But you also worked with country artists who had a little bit of a twist to what they did, people like Jerry Reed and Bobby Gentry. Yeah, Bobby Gentry was incredible. I had told her that we needed a hit song. It was probably going to have to come from her pen. She was going to have to write it. And she called me up and said, can I read you the lyrics? I don't have a melody to it yet. I think I've wrote us a hit song. And I said, yeah, please do. So she read it to me. It was about 12 minutes long and much too long to be released as a single because she was uh, from Greenwood, Mississippi. But don't let that fool you because she was not a typical Greenwood, Mississippi girl. She was highly educated. She graduated from UCLA with honors. She was an artist who got $20,000 per painting. She was that kind of a painter and a great songwriter. And her songs sounded like she was a tramp of sorts, but she wasn't. She was a real lady. Both those songs that you mentioned, Ode to Billy Joe and Fancy, are great story songs. Oh, they, they're great songs. They tell wonderful stories in three yeah. minutes. And oh, yeah, in three that's minutes. That's important, too, sometimes, oh, isn't yeah. it? Well, we had to cut it out because she had a lot of highbrow stuff in there and things I couldn't use. I said, you know, if we record this song, Fancy, with that lyric, we'll get rolled out of town on a rail. And then... Of course, Mac Davis came along, and I had Baby, Baby, Don't Get Hooked on Me, Stop and Smell the Roses, I Believe in Music, and all those great hits that we had with him. Well, those were really his biggest hits, weren't they? Well, they they were some of his biggest hits, but he wrote In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, which was a huge hit hit record. Uh, He was incredible. Well, the most incredible songwriter I've ever worked with, him and Paul Anka. And I worked with both of them, and both of them had we had number one records together. When you go back over the people you've worked with, it's sort of the who's who of 20th century popular yeah. music. It that's really is. that's remarkable. Pop and R and B and country. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so well, you, I forgot to mention Jerry Reed because I've got to mention him. He was one of my favorite people. What you saw on television of Jerry was was Jerry. The way he was in the studio, that's the way he lived his life. We had a number one record for four or five weeks, and it made the law books of the nation. And it was called She Got the Gold Mine and I Got the Shaft. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, at that time, I can remember hearing that song growing up, and it seems like the radio formats were more diverse During that time, you'd hear country and you'd hear R&B and you'd hear rock and roll Mm -hmm. all on the same station. If the music director or program director, either one, uh, likes your record, they could put it on the air. Now you've got consultants that may live in West Virginia or they may live in Los Angeles or uh, some out-of-the-way place, 
and whatever goes in their town is what they like and what they don't like. So they can call the shots with no regard for the people in Alabama don't like this kind of thing, or the people in uh, Illinois don't like this kind of thing. So they, they call the shots. So it's hard to get a record on radio and hard to have a hit record, hard to collect your money for a hit record. So all those things, factors, blend together and make an incredible... It's almost impossible to have a hit record because of those things. It would be difficult to do what you did starting out if someone yeah, was starting out today, would now. it? Yeah, it would be now. It's, it's almost impossible. Well, I'm sure you've been asked this question any number of times, but I, you probably had offers to move your base of operations to a bigger city. What made you decide to stay in the Shoals? Well, my roots were planted there, and... I lived there, and my boys, I had three boys. They all went to universities there, at the University of North Alabama, and then went on to law school, one of them did, and one went to Alabama, too, and got his, uh, his degree. And my family was there. My friends were there. I had a recording studio there. We had three or four publishing companies at the time. And so I was offered... Uh, the head of A&R at the Capitol Records. But I didn't, didn't take it because it was not uh, conducive to my kind of life or my kind of thinking. So I, I stayed in Alabama. When, and and I, I must remind you that the rest, Sam Phillips and W.C. Handy and all those people, left Alabama and went to Memphis, Tennessee or, and made their mark somewhere else. But I, I hung with Alabama, and I'm glad. <laughs> we're, we're glad in Alabama that you did. Thank you so much, Mr. Hall, for being with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you Thank today. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much. We've been talking today with Rick Hall, who is the, the genius behind Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Here's your one chance, fans, so don't let me down. This program was brought to you by the Alabama State Council on the Arts and the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Technical production by Steve Grauberger. All radio programs can be heard online at alabamaartsradio.com. And I saw the tears well up in her troubled eyes when she started to speak. She looked at a pitiful shack and then she looked at me and took a ragged breath. Your paws run off and I'm real sick and the baby's gonna starve to death.
Tonight on Alabama Arts, we remember the late Rick Hall with a look back at a show first broadcast in 2015. He talked about his father's profound influence, recalled working with artists like Wilson Pickett, Bobby Gentry, and Aretha Franklin, and he shared his insights on what makes a hit record. I got into the music business when I was about five years old. My father was a singing school teacher, an old-fashioned gospel quartet singer and teacher, and he loved gospel music. He gave me most of my knowledge about music and got me started in the business. He was my tutor. Never a day goes by that I don't think about him. He's never, he never saw any of this happen to me. His work ethics and his drive and common sense, we called it common horse sense, uh, was the thing behind my success. But first, the news. This week on Alabama Arts, we remember the late Rick Hall with a look back at a show first broadcast in 2015. My philosophy has always been if you have the same talent that I do, whether it be a record producer, a songwriter, or a musician, or whatever, if you uh, work eight hours a day, and I work 16 hours a day at my trade, I'm going to eat your lunch in one year. That's Tuesday, 8 to 8.30 p.m. Central on Troy Public Radio.